Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 104. This week's episode, game mechanics that only work in a perfect world. We like to thank Barnes & Noble Red Dot Sale for this episode. If it wasn't for all those great games at cheap prices, we wouldn't figure out what game mechanics don't work. Listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. Welcome to the episode, everyone. We're so glad to have you join us again this week. Unfortunately, Drew is out becoming a big action star on stage, and Daniel is setting up his home way down south. Until the other two guys get back, Anthony and I are here with a brand new episode. Or maybe we can actually call it the Pokemon Go podcast, because clearly that's the biggest thing in the world, and Drew's not here, so we can get away with talking about it, right? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So if Drew's not going to record with us, we should definitely follow the most recent trend related to a video game. There you go. Also, this is what I'm spending all my free time doing. So, (laughs) dude, you have no idea. Like, I was like, oh, cool, Pokemon app. And then obviously, like, the other 8 billion people who are now playing this thing, I'm, like, walking around on the sidewalk being like, I think I might get hit by a car. I should look up. (laughs) And then I like I read that article where those guys were robbing people by setting lures at a local shopping market. And I'm like, maybe I don't want to go to these local <laughs> gyms. Like, I'll just go to the churches and synagogues. Those seem safe. That's like, right. Uh, the game is eating my life. It feels like board games. <laughs> but you get a little more exercise with that. So Right? There's the thing. Although I can justify anything if I'm exercising. It's true. Although, you know, at some point, you know, they're going to have a board game related version of this and you're going to be walking around with your phone trying to catch wild meeples <laughs> or random blocks. You know, it's a Euro game. So, yeah, I was thinking that I was like, I wonder which board game would translate best mm-hmm. to uh, to AR, to augmented reality. Sure. Maybe like Arcadia Quest, but then mm-hmm. you might be like attacking each other in the streets. Could be a blood rage, right? Ooh, blood rage. That could not end poorly at all. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely area control, but maybe less conflict. I don't know. Uh, It's a possibility out there. But yeah, it's it's insane. You know, I walked down to the park and there had to be 50 or 60 odd people just kind of walking around, looking down at their phones. And you just you start driving around and you see the same people. And it's like the zombie apocalypse that everyone (laughs) talked about. It's actually happening right now. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I was about to say. When you describe that, like a bunch of people wandering around the park looking at their phone, like I, I'm thinking zombies. That's what I see in my head. It's true. It's, it... it's not people playing a game. It's it's teenagers. <laughs> phone. <laughs> ah, good times. Good times. So probably all of you are out there playing Pokemon Go and listening to the podcast at the same time. So hopefully there will be an upgrade eventually in the future. So maybe we will get our Blood Rage Go. So... Yeah, but in the meantime, look up. There's a car coming at you. <laughs> like right now. <laughs> yes, that, that is totally a thing. And Drew will never know because he was not on this episode. So keep it quiet. Just keep it between us. So we're, we're good about that. So beyond Pokemon Go, we wanted to announce some other kind of special updates. 
And one of the biggest ones that probably will be coming up pretty soon on the calendar is the Gen Con big convention. We went last year. It was amazing. We're going back this year. It's going to be even more amazing. And this Gen Con, we will actually be at the Dice Tower booth on Thursday at 3 p.m. So if you are at Gen Con, please come down, meet with us at 3 p.m. at the Dice Tower booth. We will have more details about this on our Facebook page and on Twitter so that if you want to find exactly what booth number that is uh, or how long specifically we'll be there. I think we're going to be there, what, Anthony? It's just a half hour? Uh, We'll be there for a full hour. Okay, full hour. Nice. So we'll be there from 3 to 4 p.m. on Thursday during Gen Con. And uh, we can hopefully have some conversation or maybe even set up some gaming throughout the convention. Yeah, definitely. Like, if you can swing by, awesome. We want to say hi. If you cannot, or if you can but want to meet up later, please let us know because uh, we would love to play games as much as possible. Last year was just, like, soaking in all the crazy. Um, I don't think I actually played more than one or two full games. I definitely (laughs) want to do that more this year. Also, we got a much, much better hotel this year, so we can stay out past 9 o'clock and actually (laughs) play some games with people, which should be a lot more fun. Yeah, so that's excellent. Another great kind of update we wanted to talk about, too, is you probably know that we have our YouTube channel, and currently what was sitting up there was our kind of introductory video to the world about Board Gamer Anonymous, and especially a video where you can actually see us, so that's kind of a big thing for us. But now you can find each and every episode of Board Gamers Anonymous on YouTube, so go over to our YouTube channel And you can click and listen to the episode on your computer, on your phone. So just another way to reach out and kind of connect with us, add comments, and listen to our back catalog. Yeah, so if you don't have an iPhone or you don't have a smartphone or you just don't like listening to podcasts on your phone, I know a lot of people do this through YouTube. So it's it's all on there now. And we're also on Google Play. I think that's a recent thing where they launched their podcast section. So if you're using that for podcasting, we are also on that. Excellent. So now we have a massive amount of content on there, and we're hoping to add some more YouTube videos later, and we really like to hear back from you as far as what content do you really want to see on there, because, you know, YouTube, you know, takes a little more time to kind of edit and put that stuff together, but if there's something particularly you're looking for Board Gamers Anonymous to do up there, please let us know. Check out our Facebook page and post there. And finally, we wanted to talk about something that people have been asking about for quite some time. And that would be more episodes. So we're here to announce that we're actually going to be releasing an extra episode this month. We really want to get more content out there to you. And being that Gen Con is coming up, and in addition, the Dice Tower Network will be doing a contest during Gen Con that we're part of, we wanted to kind of stick in an extra episode there for you. So You may be surprised that when you're listening to this episode, it is not the last Sunday of the month, but this episode should be releasing July 24th, so there is something right there for you, a little bit of an early episode, and then we will have our episode 105 releasing on August 7th, 2016, and that feature will be, if you like Blood Rage, try out these games, which tends to be one of our best features. And we'll be talking about what games and what game mechanics like Blood Rage you can find in other games. So maybe you're burning out a little bit on the Rage and you want to try some other games. Or maybe there were certain things about Blood Rage you really did love 
and you want to know where else you can find us in other games, that episode, once again, will be coming out on August 7th. So make sure to check in on that episode because we will have the full contest experience on the 7th. We will have that great episode about Blood Rage and the usual kind of content as far as acquisition disorders at the table and any news that are coming up about Gen Con. And then finally, it's an extra episode. So yay, Blood Rage! Blood Rage! (laughs) More Blood Rage! Yeah, it'll be fun. Last year's contest, um, I think we gave away $50 to one of our listeners, and then that person was entered into the big, big Dice Tower drawing. Um, We'll have more details on what this year's contest actually is Mm -hmm. on that episode, but just in case you were not listening last year and involved in that, it was pretty easy. You just had to fill out a quick survey or you know retweet something. So we'll make it it's suitably easy for you to to jump in and uh, enter the contest as well. But make sure you listen to that episode because that's where you're going to find out. All right. So that is our multitude of Board Gamer Anonymous slash Go content. Let's get on to the episode. Shout it from the tabletops. Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. So what we're shouting about this week is the Dice Tower Awards. So we talked about this over the last several episodes about the nominations, our picks, and now we finally have the winners for you. So if you're not up to date yet, let's bring you up to date. So in the best board game components category, the winner, and of course it had to be the winner because if it wasn't, there would be a lot of rage. So Blood Rage was the winner for best board game components. What do you think about that, Anthony? I'm cool with that. Yeah, I mean, it's the components here are just ridiculous. And for the type of game it is, too. Like, if you look at the components, you're like, oh, it's a big Ameritrash game. It's really not. It's kind of that hybrid Euro Ameritrash in-between type thing um, that Eric Lang is so good at. And the components really do make the game. It's not just unnecessary bling. Like, you have fun putting those Vikings on the board. The giants are huge. They crush things. It's great. What I really like about the components in this game especially is that it really did kind of depict a a real strong, rageful emotion to the characters. It wasn't just like a giant holding a club standing there. It was, you know, a giant with a boulder behind its head about to throw and you could could see the veins in the face. The, The sculpts were outstanding. And it really just it really gives such a solid feel to this game. It's 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 outstanding and really deserving of the award. Yeah, for sure. This is the one I voted for, so I'm happy here. Yeah, same here. All right, the next award was for best co-op game, and the winner was Pandemic Legacy. Anthony, you know about this game. Tell us about it. I've never heard of it before in my life. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Liar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this isn't surprising at all. Um Maybe a little bit. I wasn't sure if enough people had played it that it would win the category. Mm-hmm. I voted for it because I have played it, but it's a kind of game where you need to play through it really to give it kind of the the full um, consideration. Although the other games in this category were crazy good, and I would have been fine with most of them. But yeah, this one, it's it's a. I wouldn't call it a full game changer uh, necessarily, but it is because it's not the first legacy game, but it is definitely the best to date legacy game. Um, and it was a fantastic time, and it has to be co-op. So, yeah, sure, definitely deserves the award. This I didn't vote for this, but I understand it, so I'm okay with that. So the next award was for best family game, and the winner was Code Names. Duh. <laughs> it wins all of the game awards. <laughs> it does. Yeah, I'm not surprised here at all. Um, 
honestly, I don't remember what I voted for here. It was probably this, just because it was it was either this or flick them up. But I don't. I'm not surprised necessarily. Um, it's not. I'm not as in love with this game as I think some other people are because of the downtime involved. But it is a good game and it works for families. Yeah. Once again, I I understand the award. I didn't vote for it just because, as far as a family game is concerned, I really feel like different ages have to really be able to compete equally. And I think that an adult in comparison to a child is going to be able to come up with a more cohesive clue to bring in more words, whereas a a child is only going to be able to pick out one or two at the most. So it's well-deserving, just not necessarily my pick. So the next award was for Best Game Artwork. And the winner was Ashes, Rise of the Phoenix Born. Yeah, this artwork is spectacular. So... Mm -hmm. No complaints here. Again, all of these were great, but um, in terms of just raw, like, wow factor. Sure. And the, the design, too. Like, you have these white cards. They're very stark with the artwork kind of popping off of them. It's one of those games when you unwrap the cards, you do just look through them because you just want to see all the different pieces of art in there. Um, so it's definitely well worthy, well worth giving the award to. Sure. This Once again, this wasn't my vote, but I completely understand it. Even the artwork on the box cover is outstanding, and all of the individual cards is amazing. It's well-deserving this award. The only reason why I went the other way was because I felt like the artwork didn't play as integral of a part in the actual gameplay. But, yeah, amazing, amazing artwork by Isaac Vega. Great job there. All right, so the next award was for Best Game Expansion, and the winner was... Ticket to Ride Map Collection, Volume 5, United Kingdom and Pennsylvania. Also the winner for longest name of a game in any category. <laughs> um, it's not a sort of expansion. It's expansive name. I think that's what they got a couple extra points. People got confused. I see. I see what happened. <laughs> um, yeah, I think probably voted for this and German Railroads. German Railroads is so good, but this is also so good. It really revitalizes Ticket to Ride for me. And I know they have the new version coming out at Gen Con with the boats. Sure. But this, like, I don't think I've played Ticket to Ride this much ever, honestly. And, I mean, I never had that phase where I played it incessantly like some people did early on. It wasn't my gateway game. Sure. But this is pretty good. Yeah, there's only great things to say about this game. It, once again, was not my vote. I went with uh, German Railroads just because, for me, the best expansion fixes a game. Ticket to Ride, this edition, is basically its own great game. It didn't fix Ticket to Ride, which is also a great game. This just is probably the best version out there right now. So, bravo. I mean, great job. And actually, I don't own Ticket to Ride. You know, this might be the the Ticket to Ride I actually own in the future. Next award is Best Game from a New Designer. And the winner is Time Stories. Not a big surprise here. Great game. Anthony? Yeah, this is, to me, this had to be the winner. All the games in this category are very good, but none of them were just mind-blowing like this. Like, I, I still can't quite fathom what it took to create this. And from, you know, I've read some stories and some, you know, the, the blogs and diaries from him about putting this game together, and it took a very long time, and it took even longer to find someone to publish it, which is why we got all those expansions so quickly, because they were all just already there. <laughs> but <laughs> it's just astounding, and it's often seems to be that way like when somebody really does something that different and amazing it takes a while for it to reach the market um so it's probably great it did too because then it really got a chance to build up so time story is well worth this one 
I remember when this game first came out and the reviews started to come in. I think it was from Essen. And people were really down on this game. And it, it, when it finally hit the U.S., people were like, eh, not really sure. You know, it's a one-and-done type of game. I'm really not going to play this. So he had a very, very small target, and he had to make it big, and he did. And bravo. I mean, this is just an outstanding game. And for yeah. once, it was my vote. <laughs> That's nice, yeah. <laughs> you got one. Yay! <laughs> yeah, I mean, it came out at a tough time, too. It came out, you know, like the three weeks after, or maybe even just the same week as um, Pandemic Legacy, so sure. it got overshadowed a bit. But it had legs, so it stuck around long enough to really carve out a space for itself which is cool yeah and and one and another thing too uh, amazing artwork right oh my gosh yeah brilliant here yeah um, and the artwork really matters in the game which is mm -hmm. like you said is such a big a part of that all right so the next award is best game of the year and i don't know why that's the next award it should be the last award but nonetheless it's the next award and no surprise the winner is pandemic legacy yeah i mean again i'm not surprised it, this really was the year of Pandemic Legacy, mm -hmm. uh, like at least the six months after it came out. Uh, there were so many good games, though. I mean, I'm I'm fairly certain I voted for this, but I'm also fairly certain I was strongly rooting for the Voyages of Marco Polo. Sure. Because <laughs> that was my game of the year. Um, but yeah, lots of good stuff here. I, I can't remember off the top of my head which one I voted for. It wasn't Legacy. And I, and, I, and I think having edited previous episodes, I know that we mentioned this a thousand times about how innovative the games were this year, how amazing the artwork was this year, how beautiful. The, I mean, this was a stellar year for games. So there's no game in any of these categories that really didn't deserve the win. And I understand it. Pandemic has such a great pedigree and people do love the game. And the legacy mechanic is brilliant in addition to it. I just found there were so many other games. It, it, any, any game was a great winner this year. All right, and the next category is Best Game Reprint, and the winner was Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization. I know nothing about this, having okay. not played either of them yet. So this is obviously not the one I voted for, although I've heard very, very good things about the way mm -hmm. it, you know, it's been updated and streamlined, um, and I do want to play it. But I was, you know, I was rooting for Mission Red Planet. I really liked that re-implementation. Yeah, I was rooting for El Grande to to kind of win that because that game was non-existent on, you know, any publisher's radar, and for just the pop out was a miracle, and I got to rub it in Drew's face. So you know, <laughs> it's a win-win situation. I pulled that out of nowhere, so I'm I'm kind of proud of that. This is a good game. It does streamline things. The artwork is new. It makes some minor changes. Once again, it's another game that is within the top five almost every year and well-deserving of it. But as you said, it, it's it's a game that really doesn't get a lot of game play out there in the field because it's just it's so big, so long, and it eats up a table. So uh, good game. Glad to have it back in a reprint and hoping actually get to the table at some point. All right, the next award was Best Game Theming. Now, this was a really hard year because there was some great game themes this year, and the winner was time stories yeah and if you want to hear all about those amazing themes you should listen to our episode <laughs> back in march about the different themes um and this won our bracket by the way spoiler so <laughs> so the voters agreed with us yay <laughs> yeah i think it's almost impossible to pull off a, a time travel game right i mean you it's barely 
it's nearly impossible to do it in the movies. So to pull it off in a board game, wow, what a, what an amazing job. In a year of great theming for games. So bravo, nice job. All right. So the next category was best party game. And the winner was code names. Yep. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, sure. I guess. I, can, I agree. It's not my favorite party game. No. Um, yeah. But I'll play it when it comes out. I think this is better a party game than a family game. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But honestly, and as gamers, and especially probably more along the lines of maybe sometimes Euro gamers, where it's it's more of a quiet affair, Codenames doesn't seem like a party game, right? <laughs> like you're not having a party over Codenames. Like people aren't like one person is being really quiet and thoughtful, and the other people are waiting, you know, the entire time for them to do something, and then they respond, and that's it, and that's the round. So. Yeah, I mean, I I own codenames. I really enjoy it, but okay. It's a thing. It happens. It happened. Yeah. Yeah, I'm waiting for pictures. I think that'll make it better. <laughs> yeah. So the next award is for Best Small Publisher. Now, this is another category that had tremendous competition. And the winner was Stockpile. Stockpile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a... Uh... I have yet to play this. I've heard good things. I've played every other game in this category and liked all of them. So I can imagine this must be very good then because it beat out everything else. I was rooting for Fowers just because I love his games and sure. the, the style and the artwork of everything. And it, so much time goes into it. But mm-hmm. again, all of these, great. Yeah, I've played Stockpile. I really do enjoy it. It does kind of boil down the stock market mechanic to a real kind of simple, I wouldn't say gateway, but pretty close maybe a, a step a step away from a gateway kind of game so uh yeah well deserved really challenging category ah man it wasn't my pick but i it's deserving so the next award was for best strategy game and the winner was blood rage <sighs> come on guys marco <laughs> polo it was the only euro nominated for anything <laughs> except for food chain magnet for theming which come on I mean, it's very thematic, but really, that's the one thing you're going to nominate Food Chain Magnate for. This was this was my last hope for Marco Polo, a strategy sure. game. Blood Rage is a great strategy game, but it's on the line. These are all on the line. Come on. Yeah, and I actually had a, a the briefest of Facebook conversations with Tom Vassell about this because I keep saying that he's missing a great opportunity to split this category up, do a best tactics game and a best strategy game because... Honestly, as much as I do love Blood Rage, it's not really a strategy game. It's it's more tactics. Yeah, there's no strategy. You get the cards, and you're like, oh, now I do this. Oh, yeah. he moved there. Now I do this. I mean, maybe you can employ the Loki strategy, but you got to get lucky. You really have to wait until you get there. You have to play the cards that you get, you know, in your hand. You don't. You can't start with or plan to do that. You might not get the Loki cards. It might be taken away. So. Come on, Tom. We need to do two different categories here. Help us out. Help the well, Euro, Euro out. Exactly. Just have a Euro category. It could just be Food Chain Magnate and Marco Polo. And then whoever you pick, I'm happy. There you go. Pick one. <laughs> Jeez. All right. So for the next award for Best Two-Player Game, the winner was Seven Wonders Duel. Yeah. yeah. I'm fine with this one. I love this game. Yeah, this was a vote for me, too. And I was unsure if the game was going to be different enough for me to kind of enjoy it because seven wonders is one of my favorite games of all time and when i was playing this i really did feel tension 
I really felt like I, I got a, I'm always a little stressed. Are they going to pick that card? Do I need that card? How am I going to build this up? Should I go this way or should I go that way? It had a, enough variety to it and enough pressure to it that I really felt it was such a highly enjoyable game. And the final award is for most innovative game. Now, as I said earlier, being the editor for the podcast, I have to cut a lot of content out. And usually it's raving and raving and raving about certain games or certain years of games. And the word that I had to cut out, I think from a previous episode, because I said it so much, was innovative. So the most innovative game of the year, Time Stories. Not a big surprise here. Not at all. No. And this is... All the games nominated here were innovative in their own way. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, in significant ways, I think, for almost all of them, except for maybe one. Sure. Um, and, but Time Stories was just far and away, like, innovative, but also, like, still can't wrap my mind around how it was done, and it was done so well. Like, I, I have no idea how Freeman Freeze made 504 either, but it also created a lot of okay, meh sure. you know, combinations, whereas Time Stories is just like, whoa, yeah. how did you do that? So definitely deserved it. Yeah, this is a year where you can go into any of these categories and say, why didn't this game win? Because it, it should be there. But any of these games, any other year would be the winner. But it happened to happen all at once. And it happened to happen in 2015. And all of these games were deserving. And bravo to all these winners. Man, what a great job. And now, our acquisition disorders. Acquisition disorders? That's crazy. Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game and the expansion and the promos and, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So, the so base for game, this the week, there are so the many amazing acquisitions to talk components. about, See, that's not too much, especially with Gen Con coming up and then Essen following behind. But we want to talk about the games that are here and now and are going to get to our tables, hopefully as soon as we can pick them up, and we'll save the Gen Con stuff and the Essen stuff for just a little bit later but these are the games that really get in our position kind of burning up anthony why don't you start us off all right so i actually thought this was a different game uh, like two (laughs) days ago when i was making this list and it turns out there's just a lot of games coming out this year about mars which is cool because i think that's a fantastic theme this one is martians a story of civilization it is on kickstarter now Uh, i'm not sure if it'll still be on there when you guys listen to this possibly and it is the first of several different Mars games that are basically exactly the same thematically. It's going to Mars and surviving, which I don't think it's a response to the movie that just came out just because it takes so long to develop a game. But I think it coincides well with the general cultural interest in Mars, of which I am a part. Um, I'm hoping that in my lifetime we'll see somebody there. So I think it'll be pretty cool. This particular game is, I don't know how it's going to turn out. You know, Some of the feedback I've seen is good. But the game itself describes itself in, I think, a few too many ways. But it's about Mars. It's got this worker placement-ish mechanic and a lot of resource management. All things I like, so I think it can work. Um, the, the idea of the game is that you have time, you have people, and you have resources. And you kind of have to spend them in different um, orders to build out different constructions, like your hospitals, your laboratories, etc. And harvest different resources, like oxygen, because you need to breathe up there as well as time. So you need to make sure that you have enough time to do these things while up without running out of resources that will then kill you. Um, there's some other outside things that can come in and impact you, like weather, just all these different things you have to worry about, uh, which makes sense thematically, because if, if we actually send colonists to Mars, it's going to be really hard to survive. So I think that's what this game is going for. It is described in the same 
turn as uh, competitive, semi-cooperative, fully cooperative, has a solo mode. Um, I, again, when you throw that many different descriptions in there, there's no way to really know how it's going to play out without having played it, which I have not. Um, but I am very interested in it because of theme and because of you know the way things look. And there is an option separate from the game to purchase miniatures of all these different structures, um, which I think is pretty cool. So you can just get the game if you're interested, or you can add all this extra stuff to bling it out. So I'm interested. I'm eager to try it out. And I think it's if you really like Mars and you really are interested in this kind of theme, uh, it's going to be a good year in general. Uh, and this is the first of many, I think, coming out soon. So on the lighter side this week for my acquisition disorders, I'm going to be talking a lot about theme and a lot about more of the same. But for this week, that is not bad. That is very, very good. So my first acquisition up is Smash Up, Cease, and Desist. Now, you knew this was coming. Anyone who's played Smash Up, it's a quick-playing card game. So what you're doing in Smash Up is you are playing cards in order to score a certain number in order to break a base, and that will score you points based upon the first, second, and third ranking of that base and possibly its special ability. Now, the fun of Smash Up is you get to smash together two different faction decks together that are really rich and dripping with theme. So each Smash Up expansion that comes up is always about different geek kind of themes and characters and genres. Well, this time it's cease and desist because you know that they've gotten some crazy kind of legal challenges from here to there. Some crazy legal challenges from here to there based upon the themes that they've been trying to get out in the genres and the kind of legally distinct characters they've been using. Well, this time they really went for it. So in Smash Up Cease and Desist, you can play it as its own two-player game, or you can add it to the rest of the Smash Up, which I might be doing. So nonetheless, you get four factions in it. Now, you, you got to kind of go along with me here because there is no pictures of the cards out there yet, but it comes with Astro Knights. So if you could take the idea of Astro Knights and think about what space, you know, genre has knights in it with light-up swords. Well, there you go. And it also has changer bots. <laughs> so if you know any robots that happen to change, you got that one. Then you have star roamers. And, you know, any type of sci-fi, I don't know, series which has people roaming around the universe... You know, maybe for a five-year mission, maybe something like that. And then finally, you have Ignobles, which, I don't know, let's say it has a certain throne of some type connected to it, maybe playing some sort of game. At least that's as legally distinct as I can get. So basically, you are getting the four top sci-fi fantasy themes in one box that everyone's been waiting for and been talking about for quite some time. It should be hilarious to see how they kind of skirt that line between actual characters and the typical smash-up humor. This looks a lot of fun. If you haven't picked up smash-up before because maybe the theme doesn't really match you right now, I guarantee you you're going to find something in this really kind of, how would you say it, the essence of the geekness there. Nice. I'm loving how smash-up is now taking over the universe of IP as well as... <laughs> All of the different possible combinations. Uh, they're going the Munchkin route. That's good. 
They are. <laughs> they took they they got a they got a basic mechanic and they are running it to the ends of the earth. Yeah. The next step is to actually get IPs in there. I think. <laughs> I think I, so too. If they can license it out, they've they've reached the pinnacle. Yes. All right. So the next one for me is a game from, ironically, from Portal Games, which will also be releasing a Martian game sometime in the next year. And this is their newest. It's coming out, I believe, at Gen Con. I think it's releasing. And that's Cry Havoc. Um, I'm not sure how I hadn't seen anything about this before, actually. I don't know if it was just the super heavy, brutal, futuristic sci-fi universe, which, for whatever reason, never fully attracts me to a game. It always looks a little generic and a little harsh. But this game, uh, from what I've seen and what I've, I've read about it, and I have, again, I have not played this one. That's why it's in the acquisition disorders here, because I'm, I'm very interested, is a card-driven asymmetric area control war game. And so there are four different factions. They're a little different. That comes with 54 miniatures, so it's got that box checked. Um, it's got the large board, 100 different cards. The artwork looks fantastic. And the, the different descriptions I've seen are... Kemet with asymmetrical factions, which sounds very, very interesting to me. It's kind of like a mix between um, Kemet, which, again, you know, everybody's kind of the same, starting out in the same areas, and then you buy the asymmetry as you go. Or Blood Ridge, where, again, you start from the same place, but the asymmetry comes from the cards that you draft. In this case, you just start different from everybody else, which I always really like, because then the replayability is instantly better because you want to try all the different factions and all the different ways you can use them. So it looks really interesting. It is one that I will almost certainly try out uh, at Gen Con, and I might even pick up a copy depending on how many they have there. And it, just looking at the board, it's a really large board. It's got a lot of different space because it's area control. Everything's broken up really nicely. That's always one of the big questions with this kind of game is like how interesting is the board? Kemet's board is awful, as we've often discussed. And this one looks like it has a lot going on, but clearly labeled and working well with the miniatures along with the card driven system which needs to work well so again uh definitely something high on my list that i want to give a shot it's not typically a theme that i dive in for which is probably why i've just now noticed it but it is one in this case where the game looks really solid underneath it all right so for my final acquisition i'm talking mysterium now we just recently talked about the Dice Tower Awards, Mysterium was up for a ton of them, especially the artwork and the gameplay here. So Mysterium Expansion, which is called Hidden Signs, is, as I said earlier, more of the same. But once again, not a bad thing. Now, if you haven't played Mysterium before, Mysterium is basically the idea that there has been a murder in this haunted mansion, and you, as a psychic investigator, are trying to find out who the murderer was, what was the tool for the murder, and where was the murder committed. So should seem easy, and you have a team of psychic investigators along with you. But it turns out in this haunted mansion, there's been multiple murders. So as the game goes on, you are trying to figure out these crazy Dixit card dreams that you're having to try to track down the clues that you need in order to find out which specific murder took place that you are trying to get to. So this expansion adds more of the same. So you're getting more Dixit kind of dream cards. You are getting more possible murderers, more possible um, tools for the murder and locations. The artwork is amazing. It's Javier Colette. He is my favorite artist here. 
It's beautiful. It's just spooky and creepy enough to give you a little bit of a chill, but not too much that a family couldn't sit down and play this easy. There's no horror type of kind of look here, but there's some kind of ghostly images from here to there that kind of really adds to the outstanding gameplay here. Everything about this game is thematic. It plays wonderfully. I feel like this is the best party game for 2015. If you haven't played Mysterium, pick it up. You will not be disappointed. And if you've already played Mysterium and, it, and you're burning out a little bit as far as the cards are concerned, pick up Hidden Science. I think you'll get a lot out of it. All right, so that's our acquisition disorders for this week. Now, now on to the games that we've gotten to the table. And now, at the table with BGA. All right, so this week we got some amazing games to the table. But before we get into that, we want to tell you a little bit about our scoring system. So when we play games, we really play games so that we can bring that information to you and let you know if you should run out right now and go get that game because that game is a buy. Or maybe that game is just a try and you really should get down and play that game. Or maybe that game is a dodge and you should avoid it at all costs. Or maybe once in a while, maybe the game isn't really a game at all. Maybe it's just a game type of experience. And, and in that case, just go ahead and burn that game because this is not really worth hitting the table with. So with those ideas in mind, Anthony, why don't you start us off and let us know what games are hitting your table this week. Okay, so I'm going to start with a game that I never actually thought I would review because several years ago we played Zombicide and it was horrible. It was not fun. I, uh, <laughs> I tried are, to like it. Are you talking about Pokemon Go again? No, no. <laughs> the real Zombicide? Oh, okay. Sorry about that. The yeah, the real Zombicide. Oh, man. Yeah, it wasn't. I understand why people like it. It's just not the kind of game I like. You just move along, you roll dice. You move along, you roll dice. You die, you come back, you die, whatever. Killing zombies. And it lasts forever. And you pick up some loot every now and then. And okay, move on. Now, um, you know, it, it's not an exaggeration to say, and you agree on this, Anthony, right? The people who were playing Zombicide with us or playing it by themselves kind of looked like zombies after, at the end of the game, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Especially on... Uh, after Extra Life, where yes. they played for like 12 hours. <laughs> like, roll dice. Roll <laughs> dice. Must kill zombies. Now run from zombies. Now kill zombies. Run me, from zombies. Me zombie? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so when I got this copy of Zombieside Black Plague, uh, from Cool Mania or not, and so initially I'm like, okay, it's the same thing, but it's fantasy-themed, which means instantly better um the modern theme never really does it for me i'm not i don't watch walking dead i'm not a huge fan of zombies in general i think they're played out um, almost every medium at this point um but you throw in the the fantasy theme it's a plague not necessarily it's a little different they're still zombies they still call them all the same thing and so you know i kind of went in a little skeptical because i played this game i played it more than once too you know people brought it out multiple times wanted to play and just never really got into it but that was admittedly, you know, three, four years ago, back when the first game was first hitting the table. Um, this game has a lot of changes. It adds several different mechanics to it. There are shields and armor now that can protect you from wounds. Characters have more wounds than they used to. They can take three instead of two. Um, you don't lose the items when you get wounds, which drove me crazy in the original game. You spend all this time finding stuff, and then you lose it randomly based on these stupid dice rolls. Um, Opening doors now is done with weapons. 
the noise mechanic, which was there before, now kind of plays into that a little bit. Um, you can hold more cards. There is healing now, which makes sense with the fantasy theme. Um, lots of interesting things. Necromancers were added as well. So that's just a new type of bad guy that will um, create new spawn zones and then run away. Uh, and you have to capture them before they or kill them, really. There's no capturing. Kill them before they run away. Um, vaults have these really good weapons and stuff in them. So there's all this extra stuff that was added to the game. And they streamlined the rules a lot. And to be fair to the, the original, I didn't really remember it that well. I just remembered I didn't like it very much. But I did remember certain things. I remembered how quickly you died, which was annoying. I remembered how losing those cards. And I remember there really wasn't anything you could do about them hitting you. They just hit you, and it sucked. So adding the armor, adding the dice mechanics for those various things, adding the extra wounds, adding these amazing trays that they give you, these plastic trays uh, where you can put your character card and all this other stuff so you're not just... You don't have this fiddly mess in front of you. The game is much tighter than I remember Zombicide being, and that's for good reason. They did it on purpose. It's significantly more streamlined. The game takes less time to set up. It takes less time, doesn't take less time to play, but it feels more uh, contained. It's not this giant mess of stuff all over the table that you're trying to keep track of. There's still miniatures all over the place because um, the, the zombies are going on and off the board constantly, um, but that's fun. That's, that's always been a fun part of the game. And the fantasy theme really, really does a lot for this. Um, it's much more fun to play as a wizard blowing up, you know, these nobles who've been infected by this plague than it was being whatever it was, like a cheerleader and an ex-sheriff running around basically playing, you know, The Walking Dead in some city. I, that just never struck me. This is much more fun. The magical items are great. There's magic now in addition to the ranged weapons. Um some of the different characters are clearly themed after different, you know, fantasy archetypes. Uh, it's just, it's pretty cool stuff. So somehow, some, by the mercy of, <laughs> I don't even know how, Cool Mini or not, has made it so I, I don't dislike this game. I actually liked it quite a bit. I never thought I would like a zombie anything, honestly, except Dead of Winter, which is not even really a zombie game. And, but they did it. It's interesting. The miniatures are, of course, amazing, and they're very paintable. I'm still not huge on the zombies themselves. I'm not sure I'll have fun painting zombies, although they're easy to paint. You just put blood anywhere you mess up <laughs> the lines. Uh, so, yeah, I was surprised. It's, a, it looks, it's definitely a lot of fun. It plays well solo, which is always a big thing for me. And uh, so far, each of the different you know missions or quests that we've gone on have been pretty interesting, and they all turn out a little bit different, but they you know have a lot of variety going on. So it, it'll be fun to kind of build it out, um, have the expansion as well, the Wolfsburg expansion that adds werewolves, of course. Um, so that should be interesting. And then, the, you know, adding different survivors to the mix who each have their kind of their own special powers, depending on, you know, what kind of character they are, whether it's a dwarf who has extra armor or, you know, the mage who can shoot from further away with his, with his uh, magic, um, gets more dice rolls with that. Pretty interesting stuff. So... I will openly admit that my hatred of Zombicide has subsided as long as it's this version and not the other three that are out there, uh, which is pretty amazing to me. I didn't think that would happen. So it's a strong play for me. It's still very expensive. I'm not, I'm not saying I would go out and buy it, but it's, it's now a play, whereas before it was a very strong dodge. So the theme is back from the dead for you? It is. Ah, yes, yeah. it's risen. <laughs> Ah, uh, zombie jokes. <laughs> Those are still dead. <laughs> they're still they're very dead. 
They just never stay buried, unfortunately. They just keep coming back. And again, and again. <sighs> they waste away. All right. <laughs> well, glad to see that. So I got to play some amazing Euros this week, all kind of the medium weight version, and I got to play Lancaster. So Lancaster is by Queen Games, and this is an outstanding little Euro because what it really allows you to do is you're deploying knights in order to gain political influence. So you are placing your knights, depending on their number value, into different city castle areas, depending on their number value. And if it's able to stay there for the entire turn, you will be able to either get the influence of that nail bull or the special ability, or both if you pay a little bit money on the side. Now, when I say if, if they're able to stay there until the end of the round is because while you may meet the certain number of that area, somebody else can bump you out if they have a higher knight value on their little block, or if they add their knight along with some squires, they can bump you out. Now, don't despair because you can come right back with your own squires or your own kind of more powerful knight to bump them out. Now, why this is important is because there is a limited number of nobles available and you are scoring increasing numbers of victory points based upon the number of nobles that you have on your little player board. In addition to gaining these nobles and gaining special abilities, you will also be able to go on these challenges. Now, the challenge has a certain number that needs to be met in order to win. And then based upon the value of knights that you have on that challenge, and depending on what order they were played in, you will score a certain number of descending points. So it could be 4-2-1, or it could be 5-3-1. So you really do want to get the largest knight value there and as late as possible. But if you do go early on that challenge, you will be able to flip over one of these tokens that will also give you a special ability to pick up money, to pick up squires, or even to pick up a possible noble to your court. So the nobles score you points, the challenges score you points, but you also have an opportunity to score points based upon building a little castle on your player board. Now, the castle on your player board is made up of special actions that you can take, but if you get these castle pieces, which are kind of these long rectangles, you'll actually be able to build up a castle that will give you those special abilities no matter what. So you're scoring the castle to get special abilities for more money, for no more knights, for upgraded knights, for more squires. And while you're doing that, along with capturing nobles' abilities, and while going on challenges, you're scoring victory points the entire time. So at the end of the game, you take a look at your castle, you see how much you've built, you take a look at your nobles, you see how many nobles' abilities you were able to kind of gain as part of your court, you take a look at how many knights you were able to kind of add to your little army, and you're able to score all of those different things. So you take a look at the victory points at the end of the game, and there's a winner. I really enjoyed this game. I was surprised. It looked a little bland at first, but once I got into playing it, it had some really interesting decisions. And towards the end of the game, we were dead quiet. We were placing our squires, trying to figure out, well, if I place a, a level three knight here, he can bump him, but then I can go back with my squires, but I might miss out on something just as equally valuable or something even more valuable if I play it just right. It's a medium to a lightweight euro, 
And if if this sounds at all interesting to you, I would definitely pick this game up. It's it's a buy. Now, I should mention one additional mechanic to the game that I think sets it apart from any other game, which is it has a section which is you'll be bidding on. There is a mechanic to the game in which laws will come out that will affect scoring victory points at the end of each round. So by gaining nobles, you'll be able to gain political influence in order to influence which laws come into effect and which laws get cast out. So at the end of each round, what you're able to do is play either a yay or a nay token and then play any number of additional political influence cubes in your hand secretly so that when everyone kind of reveals, you may say yay, they all may say nay, but if you had more political influence cubes than they had nay, then you'll be able to win that challenge and have that law come into effect. And obviously, all of the laws are about scoring victory points based upon meeting certain conditions. So that's something for you. So if you haven't played a game like Cuba before that has a very similar mechanic, Lancaster is absolutely positively the way to go. And this is definitely a buy. A little bit of everything, guys. Sure. So what's up next, Anthony? All right. So the next game for me is probably this little thing you might have heard of. Maybe. I don't know. You probably have to know a lot about games out there. It's called Scythe. It might have been kickstarted as the largest board game kickstarter ever, right? Go on. No way. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're online right now, it's everywhere um, because everybody just got their copy. Mm-hmm. All 13,000 people, some odd, who got a copy via Kickstarter. And it's hitting retail, I think, next month. So it's going to be everywhere. This is the blood rage of 2016, I think. Um, and, since, and, and since Drew's not on the podcast this week... Can we just go on a little bit more in his absence about the fact that I predicted this would be the biggest independent IP board game for the year? Yeah. No, I think you can do that. All right. Done. (laughs) (laughs) Eat it, Drew. Yeah. (laughs) So if you don't like Kickstarter, have been under a rock for a while, or just have no idea what Scythe is, this is the newest game from Stonemaier Games, designed by Jamie Stegmaier. And the artwork here, um, which pretty much inspired the whole game. And the artwork is by Jacob Rosalski, who has built this beautiful world in an alternate 1920s history um, in Eastern Europe. So the concept of the game is built around this. You're one of five factions. You, I'm, I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but they're basically you know, Poland and England and Russia and um, Crimea, all, all basically all the major powers in Eastern Europe in the 20s but this alternate universe version of them. So the names are a little bit different. So like the Saxony Empire versus England. The game is very interesting because it is a Euro. It is area control. It is resource management. But there's also combat kind of mixed in there. So that's what makes it um, kind of this hybrid sort of game, similar to Blood Rage, similar to Kemet, where you're not just trying to control these different areas. You're also trying to, you know, gather different, resources gather different points based on the different actions you, you kind of take and there are a lot of different ways to do that so there's two different things you, well there's a lot of different things to be paying attention to during the game but two major things there's going to be your score which is how much money you have at the end of the game and then there's going to be how many stars you've placed the stars you've placed will get you points at the end of the game but that's not all of your points what it really does is expedites the end of the game so the first person to play six stars the game ends immediately 
And you get stars for placing all of your buildings, for using all of your upgrades, for placing all of your mechs, for maxing out your power meter, for maxing out your popularity. There are, I think, 10 different ways you can get stars, maybe 12. And things like combat will only get you a maximum of two stars. And the objective cards will only get you a maximum of one card. So while these things are interesting and part of the game, they're only able to impact a small percentage of the total needed to kind of end the game. And you don't necessarily get any more points from combat beyond those two. So it does strongly encourage you to do a lot of different things, but not necessarily all of the different things. Kind of hard to describe in that way because when you have an asymmetrical game with so many different things you could do, you you get to choose which ones you're going to tackle at any point in time. So every game is going to be different. Your objective is going to drive you in one direction, but that's really still only one part of your overall strategy. Other parts will include what your opponents do on the left and right of you, um, how much space you have open to you, uh, which resources you really need, depending on which faction you have. The uh, player map that you get will be randomized. So the actual resources you need to make certain upgrades and buy make certain purchases will be different depending on which player mat you get. Uh, the encounter cards you draw, because there are different encounters across the board, those will be different as well. Like, And a lot of those will have things on them, you know, like you get free resources or boosts in popularity or free combat cards, but it'll depend kind of what you need at any given point, which ones you're going to take. So you're constantly making different decisions. You're constantly deciding what things you need at any point in time. There's a lot going on here and a lot of different decisions you'll be making. And a lot of it does depend on, you know, the asymmetry of your faction, because every faction has its own special power, both for the faction itself and for each of the mechs you build. So when you build a mech, it unlocks another power. Like each of them will be able to cross a river in a different way. Each of them will get uh, movement boosts or effects to combat in different ways. All these things are different depending on which faction you play. All of them are different depending on who you're playing against. It, so you can get the idea here. There's a lot going on. So it's not surprising to me at all that Jamie ran hundreds and hundreds of blind playtests to get this game just right. That took a very long time to kind of polish it up because there's so many different permutations of how the game can play out. Um, and so far, having played it through it several times, they all played out pretty much evenly. And it was a very interesting flow from start to finish. It doesn't always feel like it's going to, which I find very interesting. The, the flow of the game doesn't always fit what you think is going to happen uh, in terms of scoring, or maybe you'll feel like you did the exact same things or you tried to make the same decisions and it ended up wildly different than it was in a previous game. But at the same time, because of the nature of those decisions, they aren't the same. And what your opponent does has such an impact on what you're doing. I enjoy this game immensely. I think it's fantastic. Uh, it, it does have that post Kickstarter luster right now where everybody wants to play it and everybody's having fun and everybody wants to try all the different factions. I've played through the Automa deck several times now too, trying to get through each of the factions to see how they each play uh, in, in that mode. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of legs it has. Extremely replayable because of all the different randomization that happens when you start the game. You, you only get two objective cards, for example, uh, and the deck has you know, 30 or 40 cards in it. So you're going to rotate through those a lot. You're going to be, you know, have a lot of different objective options as you play the game. The factory cards, I think there's 12 of them that come here and you're only going to get a maximum of one per game, which adds a new action to your board. So there's a lot of different things that are going to be different every time you play. It's very similar to Terra Mystica in that way where, you know, you could play that game 
20 times and really just have played each faction once and so now you need to play another 20 or 30 times it feels similar to that you know my approach to it the only thing i have to say about it that's been a little tough uh, especially in teaching it is that the first few rounds are a bit slow you really are limited in what you can do as you build up resources and get the ability to move across water uh, and make sure that your faction is in a good position so that when you do cross the rivers you are ready to combat people because each of your actions can theoretically allow you to do two different things early in the game it can be frustrating when you can only do the one thing and it's a very simple thing that you do it makes the game easier to teach but it also slows it down a little bit and so people aren't quite as engaged for the first 20 or 30 minutes i think it's still fine and as people get to know the game that part of the game flies by much quicker but that is one thing i've noticed here uh, overall though I'm, I'm very happy this is basically exactly what i'd hoped for is a fantastic hybrid style you know area control uh action selection resource management with just enough combat in there but not the kind of combat that just makes you want to punch the table <laughs> like a lot of area control games if you lose it's not the end of the world if you win you don't instantly you know take advantage in the game either it's just an interesting component that really you should only do when it makes sense for you to do you don't just go across the board attacking people so yeah, Scythe, um, I say it's a buy, especially at the price point, you know, when it hits retail. Uh, if you didn't get in on the Kickstarter and you want all the collector stuff, good luck. I mean, people are marking this up like crazy on eBay and BoardGameGeek, so it's hard to find all that stuff. But Jamie is selling most of it separately on his website, so you can get a lot of the resource upgrades. You can get the larger board, which is so freaking big. <laughs> it doesn't fit on any table I own. Um, I did make it fit once on the on the dining room table just because I wanted to play with it, but it's it's tough. But yeah, this is definitely one to check out. And and ideally, you have someone in your game group who backed this because so many people did, and you can give it a go. Um, but if not, even still, it's a strong strong play um, and a buy. I think um, one of the better, probably the best Kickstarter game that I've received to date um, and probably going to end up being one of the better games this year. Yeah. So the uh, final game I want to talk about is another kind of light to medium weight Euro and that's Porta Nagra. It's part of the great designer editions from Stronghold Games but when it came out it was kind of you know so-so. It really didn't have the impact that uh, Stronghold Games was hoping for and kind of kind of and kind of got left behind in the end. So in Porto Nagra, you are building these outstanding gateways to the city. And on your turn, you'll be able to go around the board, pick up a building piece based upon where you are in a certain quadrant and based upon the color of that quadrant. So you pick up a piece. If you picked it up in the yellow quadrant, then you have to put it in your player board in that same yellow quadrant. Now, there's rarity that comes along with these different colored pieces, even though the building pieces itself are all gray. So when you look at the actual board, it's actually kind of disappointing because it's a really nice-looking board with these really boring gray kind of building components. And then on top of which, you add uh, a meeple of your color to denote that's your little kind of tower there. So you're building up your little player board with the pieces in the color in that particular quadrant that you purchased it from in order to get enough pieces of that color in order to move your piece around to that particular area, place your building pieces down to build in that area and to score the appropriate victory points. Now on top of picking up pieces, putting together an area, building them in a certain area, you're going to be able to pick up 
victory point cards based upon what color you build in a particular area. So on one side of the board, you're going to see a number of different cards that are going to relate to a certain color and a certain quadrant. So if you build based upon that order, you get that card. If you get a set of those cards, you are going to get a large number of victory points. But also in this game, you can also pick up victory points that you were able to get if you trade in one of those, each of those cards plus scrolls. Now, I didn't mention scrolls yet because scrolls are basically the currency in this game in order to pick up special abilities that you'll be able to use, which can be adding additional building pieces. It could be also picking up torches, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Or you can pick up additional building parts that you're going to use for building your towers. So basically, you're going around, you're building towers, you are picking up cards for set collection, you are using your scrolls for special ability cards that you'll be able to play in the game. And then finally, the most interesting mechanic to this game is you're going to get a small deck of cards. Now, everyone gets the same deck, and you'll be able to take two cards from that deck, pick which cards you want to play, and then play that card. Once you play that card, so you'll be able to take a certain number of actions based upon the torches that are on the bottom of that card. So the actions could be to get money, to get additional torches, to get additional scrolls, to pick up building parts, or to actually build. Now, in the game, there's also torches, which are a separate component that you'll start with one in the game, and you can actually be able to get special abilities to get you more in the game. And then by having those extra torches, you'll be able to play special abilities in that turn so once you play that card it goes back to the discard and you can play another card so basically the cards let you do special abilities in the game and there are basically two major rounds this game so you play all the cards next round you play all the cards the game is over so it's pretty much a quick playing light to medium weight euro game uh it has some nice interaction as you're trying to jockey to get to certain spots before someone else does but the game really plays with a lot of different people. We had a lot of players who weren't Euro game players who sat down and really did enjoy this game. So I'm going to say this game is worth a play. It misses a buy because the components, at least with the gray building pieces and the kind of substandard meeples in this game, is just below the quality you expect to find in a high-quality designer board game. So if you do see Porter Nagra come out, really do sit down and play. I think you really will enjoy this game. All right, so that's everything that's hitting our table this week. Now on to our feature review. And now BGA's feature review. So for our feature review this week, we want to talk about game mechanics that only work in a perfect world. Now you probably come across several of these mechanics that seem like they are going to be amazing on the box and you read about them and you hear people talking about them. But when you actually get to play the game and you see the mechanics firsthand, they just don't work. Why don't they work? Well, honestly, they're only going to work in a perfect world. So we're going to talk about some of these mechanics that we really wish would work all the time, but unfortunately only work part of the time and even somewhat less of the time or even somewhat clunky at the time. I don't know. They work once in a while. All right, Anthony. What's one of those mechanics that only really works well in a perfect world? I think the first one that comes to most people's mind is true co-op. A game that does not have a mechanism in place that forces people to make their own decisions and not anybody else's decisions 
just can't really work in a perfect world. It's almost like communism in the fact that, <laughs> yeah, if everybody just stuck to what they're supposed to do in theory, yeah, it would work. But someone's always going to know the game a little bit better and they're going to have ideas and they're going to say, oh, 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 oh. But, you know, if you mm, yeah, but if you go there, then this is going to no, just trust me. No. Yeah, I know you don't see it, but just trust me. This is going to happen. <laughs> just you know what? I'll just move it. It's fine. It's is fine. it? Are we OK with this? You guys OK with this? We're doing this. And sometimes it's fine. Maybe nobody's played before and they're like, oh, this guy's guiding us. That's great. But let's say everybody's played the game or worse. Let's say you've been playing for two hours and you're like, I understand the game now. Nobody enjoys the alpha gamer. And most true co-ops, especially the older ones, the the more gateway um, level ones, such as Pandemic, have the alpha gamer problem. And it, it can be very frustrating. Now, if you have the right group of people and you all work collaboratively and everybody discusses it, and you come to a decision, and then you do that thing, that's ideally how it works. You don't want everybody making their own decisions without discussing it either, but you also want to feel like you're playing the game, not just moving a piece that some guy tells you what to do with. And that's what ends up happening a lot in co-ops. So in a perfect world, a co-op is one of the best game experiences out there. In reality, frequently it can turn into a very frustrating alpha gamer-led expedition that, especially if it ends poorly, can be very frustrating. Sure. And to kind of piggyback on your political example, it's a, a pure co-op should be a real democracy, right? We all vote. We all decide together. We all have input. All of our input is equal. We all make that decision. And that decision takes place. But most of the time, it seems like more like a republic, right? Everyone votes on who really is the best gamer for that game. And they just make all the decisions. And the rest of us just kind of like nod and go along with it. So, yeah, that alpha gamer player is really an issue. And those co-op games, man, I really wish they work really well. All right, so my next mechanic that really bugs the heck out of me is area control games that require all players to attack the leader or at least keep the leader in check. So maybe you've played one of these multitude of games where the kind of end goal is to control as much area as possible on the game board and then at some point, some player kind of leaps ahead and they're really controlling a good portion of the land and they're just kind of steamrolling a little bit and it's not your turn. And really what needs to happen is the next player needs to stop that runaway leader before they get any further. They're just capturing a lot of land and maybe they do a little bit or maybe they do nothing at all or maybe they turtle or maybe they just kind of go a different way you can see those small pebbles become an avalanche rather quickly and you're really asking other players come on do you see who's in the lead here can can you do something about that because by the time it gets around to me it's going to be way too late so area control games that require other players to kind of keep the leader in check really honestly only happens in a perfect world. Seriously. And some of the, the, the most frustrating thing, and the reason we put this list together, is because some of those games are great. They're brilliant. You can read it, and you're like, wow, that looks amazing. Unless this guy over here keeps attacking me, <laughs> even though that guy over there is about to win. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Leave me alone. It's true. Uh, Drew? <laughs> uh. All right. <sighs> So the next one for me on the list is very simple, and it's a mechanic we've all encountered because it's in one of the best-selling gateway games of all time, and that's trading. Trading doesn't work because it involves an inherent 
social contract between two players. You have to make an agreement. You have to discuss it and decide what's a fair trade and then make that trade. And the problem with that is that you might be okay making the trade with John, who's your buddy that you've known for 10 years. And you're like, yeah, whatever. I guess it's fine. But then Joe, who you just met and he kind of smells a little funny and you're like, I don't know about this guy. Why you just sat down and he was playing the game. I didn't even ask him to. He won't get the same terms and therefore he's getting a different game experience based not at all on the game mechanics. So in a perfect world, the everybody would sit and evaluate, you know, what the value of what they have versus what someone else has and then make a decision based on what works best for them versus the other player. But in reality, frequently the social dynamics of the table and the interactions between those people and whether you like somebody or not will determine whether you're willing to trade with them, Um, which can make the game not a lot of fun for those other people or not a lot of fun for just anybody in general who just wants the game to be fair and square. It's one of those reasons why the idea of like a Catan tournament is Mm -hmm. just troublesome in so many ways. Like you can't have a tournament based on a game where somebody can decide, basically make decide who's going to win the game based on how they want to trade with other people. It's also a reason why Catan just flat out doesn't work as a two-player game unless you're playing with like your spouse or something and you don't really care. Trading can really cause a lot of issues. It doesn't work except in a perfect world. Sure. Yeah, that's always frustrating when you see somebody getting a very good deal and then it comes up to you and you're not getting the same deal and it's like, but if you look at the calculations here, you should really be doing this for me or not for them or they're in the lead and it just it just hurts the whole game. It really hurts. And Catan's the perfect example of that too. So our next mechanic that drives me really nuts has to be the, I would say, not cheating slash giving clues, whether it's unconscious or conscious kind of mechanic. And it's probably best depicted in Hanabi where you have these games where you need to communicate information but very limited information and in a very defined kind of space. But either because we're flawed people or because we communicate in a number of different ways other than verbally, a lot of times information is given out and you're sitting in a game and you're going, why are they doing that? Why are they giving away that little information? So like, for example, Hanabi, where you can only give away information as far as the number on the card or the color on the card and someone will say, this one is a number one, and this one's also a number one. So that you're basically telling that person what card to play there. Now, sometimes this is intentional, and it oftentimes comes along lines of where you meet somebody who goes, oh, I always score 25 in Hanabi. I don't know why you guys are having such a problem with it. And you're like, liar. But, you know, in truth, they're giving away information, whether they know or not, that's kind of leading the game a little bit. And sometimes it can be helped, sometimes it can't, but honestly, these types of games, they really don't work well unless it's a perfect world. Yeah, it always frustrates me because it's not fun. Uh, Co-ops are not fun. Any of those games where you're playing against the game itself are not fun if it's that easy. You shouldn't win all the time. So I feel like if you are winning all the time, you're playing it wrong, and you should know that. And so when you're winking or nodding your head very strongly in one direction um, and adding that extra information. It, it's not, it's it's one of the reasons I won't play Hanabi with people I don't know because mm-hmm. it's almost certainly going to end up like that. Uh, it's very frustrating. doesn't work. 
All right. So the next one for me is um, based on several instances of trying to make this work. It's the two-player game trying to masquerade as a four-player game. Um, and there's a lot of these. More specifically, it happens a lot with LCGs. Uh, so you have games like, uh, well, really, you know, going even back to CCGs and Magic and Two-Headed Dragon, or Two-Headed, what is it? Two-Headed Giant. And more specifically, going back to like CCGs with like Two-Headed Giant, where you play four people, and the idea is everybody attacks each other until... Um, one person is left. So you can play Ashes like this. You can play Game of Thrones like this. Um, there's several games that you can play, four players instead of two, which is really the ideal for you know a one-on-one -on -one card game. And not only does it create the attack the leader problem that we just talked about, but it makes the game so long, so long. <laughs> because while someone's not being attacked, they're healing up. And while someone else is not being attacked, they're healing up. It's just it drags out exponentially longer than just a two-player game would. It makes it so much less fun. Summoner Wars, it's another one where the box says you can play four, and I would not do that. I've done it. I'm not doing it again. Um, there's a lot of games out there that try to add, whether it's just because they want to appeal to more players by saying they can handle four, I don't know. But it just doesn't work in most cases. Special mention here goes to games that are clearly designed for one-on-one -on -one asymmetrical play, like War of the Ring, Star Wars Rebellion, 1775, uh, that say they play up to four players. Yeah, technically, but anytime you're splitting a force in half and you have two people playing the same side in War of the Ring, really you're just having, you're just playing less of the game. You're just playing half of that game. You might as well just watch. Um, there are a lot of four-player games out there. You don't need to split a two-player game in half like that. It, it just doesn't work. There's no real point to it, I, in my opinion. There might be other people who really enjoy that, kind of playing that side cooperatively, but it doesn't really make sense because all the decisions really should be made by one, by one person. Um, so yeah, in an ideal world, we should be able to play any two-player game where technically all the mechanics work for four people as a four-player game, but it, has, it doesn't work because of all the other problems. Yeah, this is a really disappointing mechanic that always gets me excited when you look at the box and it says two to four. I know that, you know, Star Trek Fleet Captains is one of them that really kind of bugs me a little bit because it seems like it should be doing this. It looks like it's going to do this and it doesn't do this. And you just drag another two players along with you to have a really terrible time where two players can really enjoy this game. And it's kind of sad because you thought it's a four player game and it's really not. So kind of rough all right now another mechanic speaking of which that kind of uh does not work and does not work well is to take that type of mechanic so maybe you've experienced this in cutthroat caverns or munchkin or any large number of games i think probably this mechanic is the most pervasive mechanic in all of gaming where basically based on whether it's actual meeples or most more along the lines is usually cards is on your turn, you're going to play a card to attack another player. Now, this is not generally a problem, but a lot of games have this mechanic where all the game is, is take that. So I hit you, you hit me, I hit you, you hit me. Now, if you're playing a two-player game, it's at least somewhat balanced because there's only one competitor in that game. But if you do have multiple players, 
what you're going to see inevitably is one player getting crushed and another player kind of skirting away undetected and running away with the game. In addition to that, while it is a game and we all understand it's a game and we're not taking it too personally and we're not taking it too seriously, almost inevitably someone is going to take it personally and then start hitting another player with those take that cards, even though based upon where the game is currently in the gameplay, it doesn't really make any sense. So you'll see a player keep getting hit because they hit somebody else early on. And now that kind of game mechanic is totally thrown off. The game balance is off and it really doesn't make any sense. And that game mechanic just doesn't work well at all. And I don't even necessarily dislike games where you attack each other. It just really has to be structured better. And in an ideal world, the designer doesn't, shouldn't have to do that. Shouldn't have to tell people like, all right, don't attack that guy six times in a row. But you kind of end up having to do that. You have to find a way to build in a mechanism where you don't just pick on somebody because people are people and they're going to do that. Or maybe someone attacks somebody in the first round, so then everybody attacks that guy repeatedly later. It's it's very frustrating. And it can actually hurt other games that don't necessarily have a take that mechanic so much in them. Like Citadels is one where take that's in there um, pretty strongly, but it can actually take over the game when somebody just starts picking on one person as much as they can or try to you know it it can take over other games that aren't necessarily designed to be like that something like cutthroat caverns is of course to take that game through and through but man there's so many of them out there so the last one on my list is not necessarily a mechanics thing although it can definitely affect mechanics but it can have a huge impact on the playability of the game and the inclusiveness of the game and it comes up a lot and that's the colored cards and components and the impact it has on colorblind players. So there's a lot of people who are colorblind to some degree or another. And, you know, most games you'll look at them, you'll see that in addition to color coding, they'll also have symbols and and different artwork just to kind of tell the different things apart for people who can't see certain colors or who who have trouble differentiating between them. Games that try to be overtly visual so it's pure visuals it's it's all patterns it just doesn't work in an ideal world everybody will be able to play that and enjoy it and just have fun playing this very visual experience but in reality by going so far down that road and making something that's only accessible if you have certain abilities or or, are able to look at something in a certain way you limit the game significantly this also applies to language and several other things. And it doesn't mean that the games like that can't exist, but it does mean that you are by definition, you know, excluding certain people from enjoying a game if it's if you really need to be able to tell the difference between those colors or if it puts somebody at a disadvantage, you know, if the board is hard to to make out or if you can't tell the difference between two types of resources based on that because the shapes are the same or whatever it ends up being, it can very much hurt the experience for a lot of people. And in an ideal world, that wouldn't be the case. But in, you know, in, in our gaming world, we want to be as inclusive as possible. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah, this happens a lot where, while it's not necessarily a mechanic, but sometimes it does play a mechanical part in the game. And sometimes it's, you know, the red looks too close to the orange in the heat of the game. You think you're way ahead or way behind or you think you're covering a certain area, you're on a certain point, and it, it just slips your mind for a second. And even if you're not colorblind, it throws you. So, yeah, that that definitely could be a big problem. And the ideas of these colors and what the, you know, the game designer was thinking, I really don't get it sometimes. 
All right, so our final game mechanic that only works in a perfect world, and this is one that's hit almost every part of com collectible gaming, is the CCGs. It's the miniatures. It's the flight pass systems. And basically the mechanic is, or what the mechanic turns out being, is money equals power. And in particular, games that tend to have power creep or games in which by purchasing certain cards, by winning certain competitions or maybe buying those cards from those certain competitions, you now have a miniature or a set of miniatures, a set of cards, or a set of ships with cards that are overpowered and are dominating the game when that mechanic was there to incentivize the game or to create some hype about the game or some additional flavor, and it just throws the game completely off. The... Star Trek Attack Wing, or the Dungeons & Dragons Attack Wing, or the Star Wars Miniatures game, or any number of these types of game, especially Magic, these, you know, power creeps are always going to cause problem in any game that you play like this. Yeah, no, this is incredibly frustrating, and I have several games that I have gotten into and then fallen out of almost immediately, <laughs> because... At a certain point, like you can't afford to keep up unless you want to go all in on a game. And there are certainly people who are willing to do that and who go to the tournaments and play it heavily. But I like to dabble a little bit and I would love to be able to, you know, go into the organized play at my local game store and play X-Wing or uh, Imperial Assault even, which is not even a collectible one, but just kind of that you have to go spend a bunch more money. You have to spend a lot of money to be competitive in these games um, and forget CCGs like Magic, where you have to spend thousands of dollars to even get close to competitive level. It's it's pervasive, and it becomes a problem for so many gamers who maybe stumble into something like this, and they think that's what the gaming world is. That's what I was. I mean, back in high school, I just I got out of this stuff completely because, to me, gaming was things like Magic, where if you didn't spend a ton of money, you were not going to have a lot of fun. So... Uh, in an ideal world, everybody would have access to all those, and thankfully the LCG model has made it a little bit more like that, although it also has its own power creep. Um, but they're still out there, and it's still, it, it can affect a lot of things. And the frequency of releases in some of these, you know, even the LCG-style games, causes the same problem. Uh, absolutely. I was playing Star Trek Attack Wing until it got to the Borg faction, and I was just like, it seems like the new cards and ships are just so incredibly overpowered and the ones that you were able to pick up in the tournament were so rare that people were only being able to get them by purchasing them. So, yeah, I can't play this game anymore. And it just broke my heart because I have a lot of it and I really enjoyed playing it. But who in their right mind is going to go to a tournament day or even a regular game day where someone can throw down a combination that maybe cost them $200 but it completely shuts you down completely from, you know, turn one. So, unfortunately, these game mechanics, while great in theory, do not kind of follow through in their actual practicality, and they are missing something. And sometimes it requires gamers to play as fair and as super honest as possible. Sometimes it requires gamers to be on their toes 100% of the times. And sometimes it's just mechanics that really don't work out because maybe we're just really imperfect people. So nonetheless, these are game mechanics that are fun and should be played, but should keep in mind that they only play well in a perfect world.
Yeah, so don't email us a bunch of times and say, well, what about this game? It works really well in this game. <laughs> Talking about in general, guys. Come on. Yeah, or maybe you... your group is a perfect group. I don't know. And if you email me and say that you always get 25 Hanabi, I'm not talking to you anymore, okay? Yeah, I'm just saying that. <laughs> you're, you're cheating. Someone in your group is cheating. Just, and if you don't know who it is, it's you. Or you're psychic, which is awesome, but still, it's still cheating if you're psychic. Yeah, that's true. You shouldn't be playing Hanabi if you're psychic. <laughs> All right. So that's everything for this week. So in keeping with our perfect mechanic theme, we do already have a perfect mechanic for you to keep in contact with us. So keep in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on BoardGameGeek, not to mention our Patreon account, which was recently redesigned and update so that we can get more great content out there to you. And don't forget our YouTube channel. It has all of our episodes, not to mention a pretty kind of you know, kick-ass little teaser trailer for BoardGamersAnonymous.com. So until then, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. We'll save you a spot on our Pokemon Go. (laughs) (laughs) 